Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the second of our theme talks for Summer School 2018. I just want to check, can everybody hear me? Because I'm not miked. So then, how shall we live? I think that we can say with unpredictability, <laughs> sometimes with water and sometimes without. <laughs> I want to misquote F. Edith Sitwell's um, Eurydice. Life, but not love, is changed by death. And nothing is lost, and all, in the end, is harvest. The title of this book. light, our chalice flame. A symbol of our community and togetherness this morning. I light this chalice in celebration of life, in memory of those we have loved, in awe of the mystery within and the mystery beyond. <coughs> Some words by Marjorie Pfizer on strength. Inside, I am making myself strong. I am weaving bands of steel to bind my soul. I am knitting stitches of suffering into my hands to make them strong. I am strengthening my mind with the warp and weft of weariness and endurance. I am binding my faith with the bonds of psalms and songs of all who have suffered in time. I will be tempered like fine steel to bend but not to break. So we come to our story, but some of the children are not here with us, except they are here virtually, in spirit. And as the inventor of a role in my professional life as virtual school head, that sounds quite appropriate. And so we have some sea and some sand and some starfish and the sun. 
So once upon a time, there was an old man who used to live by the ocean and do his writing daily by the beach in a beach hut. He had a habit of walking on the beach every morning before he began his work. Early one morning, <clears throat> he was walking along the shore after a big storm. The big storm had passed and found, he found the vast beach littered with starfish. They were cast as far as his eye could see, stretching in both directions. Off in the distance, the old man noticed a small boy was approaching. And as the boy walked, he paused every so often, and as the boy grew closer, the man could see that occasionally he was bending down and picking something up and then throwing it into the sea. The boy came closer and still the man couldn't see what he was doing quite. But gradually he got closer and the man called out to him, Good morning, may I ask what you're doing? The young boy paused, looked up and replied, I'm throwing starfish into the ocean. The tide has washed them up onto the beach and they can't return to the sea by themselves. When the sun gets high, they will die unless I throw them back into the water. The old man replied, but there are tens of thousands of starfish on this beach. I'm afraid you won't be able to make a difference. Or at least not much of a difference. Well, the boy bent down again on that and picked up yet another starfish and threw it as far as he could into the ocean. And then as he took a few more paces, he turned back and he said to the man, well, it made a difference to that one. <laughs> and so I think that is the moral of the story for this morning. That a single ordinary person can make a difference. And single ordinary people are doing precisely that every day. story of the starfish. So at this time we would normally wave goodbye to the children as they go off to their activities. I don't know if Thomas is staying with us for a little while <laughs> or going to join the others.
I was reading that there was an alternative ending suggested to that story, or at least an extension of it, which was about how one person can make a difference. But if that boy had gone and got all of his friends to come to the beach, how many more starfish they would have been able to save. Let us sing now. Hymn number 189 in our purple books, but to a different tune to the one in the purple book. Beatitudes. We celebrate the web of life. A hymn very much about our human legacy to the earth and all about how we live here. 189. talk is living, dying and living with our leg and, and living our legacy how to create our legacy the main emphasis that I'm going to be focusing on this morning is how we create our legacy Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. 
rage, rage against the dying of the night. I don't know if my father Billy knew this poem by Dylan Thomas, but he certainly lived up to its advice. Billy's eyes flashed with frustration as he spoke his last words to my brother Derek and me. Go away, you expletive deleted pair of mongrels! <laughs> what an exit! <laughs> While not the comforting goodbye one would hope to hear from a, a parent, it was perhaps appropriate an appropriate one for a man who loved his dogs and who kept their leads once they had died in a tin. The words and the dog leads are now part of Billy's legacy. To me, along with memories of his love of Guinness, my regrets that we never really ever had a, a properly deep conversation. His impatience, especially at what he saw as his sister Lil's fussing over him, and the soft, even sentimental heart beneath the bluster. I can't change any of that now. But I think Dad would have been amused that nearly four years after his death and his last words to me and his son Derek have been his gift to me this morning for this second of our theme talks on living, dying and considering our legacy. At the time, of course, neither he nor we knew that they would be his final words. And that's the reality for us all, isn't it? There's unpredictability built into our living and our dying. I could have died of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in 1975. I could have perished in the 1987 King's Cross fire, I missed it by minutes. I could so easily have been coming out of Parliament on the day the terrorists struck last year. We can easily pass our days not thinking very much as we ought to about what really we want to do with our lives, what will remain of us when we die, how we would like to be remembered. I shall always remember being at summer school with Jean Mason when she read Mary Oliver's poem, Who Made the World? I'm sure many of us here know it. It was just after she'd finished a cycle of treatment for cancer, the cancer that finally claimed her. It was the poem's last line that meant the most to her because it was so poignant. So I'm going to read it now. 
Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean, the one who has flung herself out of the grass, the one who is eating sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around with her enormous complicated eyes. Now she shifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me what it is that you plan to do with your one wild and precious life. In all we say and do, we're constantly creating the memories like the one that Jean left me with. We make the footprint, carbon or otherwise, that we shall one day leave behind. We sang just now of our legacy to the earth over time. Let's reflect on those words. We celebrate the web of life, its magnitude we sing. For we can see divinity in every living thing. Of ancient times, we are the sun. Our bones link stone to star and bind our future worlds to come with worlds that were and are. It's through this tapestry of our living and our aliveness in our speaking and our listening and our doing that we weave that web, the pattern, into the fabric of our lives. And as we weave that pattern, the routine of daily life, the busyness, the rel relentlessness, the grind of practical demands, can mean that so easily we forget how precious we are to the world and to each other. In the film, It's a Wonderful Life, which I'm sure many of you know, George Bailey, the hero, faces financial ruin. Through a combination of circumstances, love and loyalty, George has given up his dreams of leaving Bedford Falls. He believes himself to be worthless, a failure, that it would have been better had he not been born at all. So on the brink of suicide, on a cold Christmas Eve, his guardian Clarence appears and shows George 
the big difference that he made in small ways to the lives of those he touched. Had George not been born, his brother would have drowned because George was not there to save Harry when, aged nine, Harry fell through the ice. The thousand people whose lives Harry saved during the Second World War would in turn have died because Harry himself would not have been alive to save them. George doesn't take his own life and because he is so loved by his community for the goodness he has infused into the lives of people in Bedford Falls over the years, the $8,000 that he needs to be saved from financial ruin is provided by those very same people of the town. Our legacies are made while we live and in the love that we leave behind. They're woven through the patterns that we create. It's through these patterns that we leave a footprint without perhaps even ever knowing it. James Barry captures these patterns movingly in a poem that he published on Facebook, The Workshop. He wrote it to and in the memory of his father. And he's given me permission to share it, so I'm going to read an extract now. Thanks, Dad, for the workshop with its dozen different shaped hammers, sawdust sacks, raw plug packs and racks of assorted spanners. There are tobacco tins of nails and rolls of galvanised wire, salvaged hinges and fixings kept next to the old rubber tyres. Everything happened at your slow, methodical pace, on the benches or in the vices. Not only somewhere quiet to practise skills, and develop competence. It more importantly steered a mindset of belief and confidence. We solved everything there, Dad, didn't we? There was always an answer, even if it meant changing what you thought you needed to do. Thanks, Dad, for the workshop and the sewing showing me how to splice rope, swing a felling axe, and polishing up a turned spinning wheel, candlestick on the lathe with sealing wax. Everything had its place, even if it wasn't there when you wanted it. The objective on all the products was the same, make it for the least possible cost. And while we didn't do traditional health and safety, there was always common sense. And with pride, 
I see an unfinished project on the bench labelled Maisie's. Maisie is James's daughter. It was an honour to make your last present that went with you today. And don't worry, all the bits I have left over did not get thrown away. Recycling and reusing. James's dad's legacy to his son. So where's our starting place this morning? For me, there can only be one in reflecting on and sharing with you the stories of the living and dying of those I have known and loved and admired. Pat and Maggie, Rishenda and Philip, my Aunt Lil. In the way they lived and even in the manner of their dying, they wove their legacies. Pat was my history teacher and we kept in touch until her death in 2017. In a school that would have been closed down had Ofsted existed in the 1970s. Pat believed in her pupils. She believed in me. She was tall and slim with short steel grey hair. She wore printed cotton floral dresses or neat suits and blouses. She marked books with her silver Parker pen in her tiny neat handwriting using pink rather than red ink. <laughs> when I was collecting tributes for Pat's memorial meeting, I caught a glimpse of what it means to live a good and useful life. Sue, a young English teacher and colleague of Pat's, wrote of her that Pat managed to get homework out of the kids, which is more than I could. There was a book hanging on a string on the staff room wall with the title The Right to Learn. Pat had a lot to do with the writing of it and it expressed the principle that Pat's teaching enshrined that all pupils had the right to be well taught. South Hackney was a difficult school to teach in, but she had it wrapped up. She must have benefited the lives of hundreds of Hackney children, and she set me an excellent example. When I had problems with discipline, she once said, it's because you're so young and pretty. <laughs> like their mother they'll behave better. <laughs> the tributes from old pupils mention a lovely lady, a good teacher, someone who gave her all and always made time for each and every one of us. A teacher who was second to none. We couldn't have asked for better. Pat was kind and understanding and to the frustration I think of some of her colleagues organised and businesslike. She had to be, 
Her daughter Kathy was born with cerebral palsy and severe learning difficulties. Kathy couldn't speak and often had fits. And at the age of four, Kathy developed severe rheumatoid arthritis and gradually her needs grew more complex. When Kathy was too sick to eat, she was fed and received drugs through a nasal gastric tube. Kathy died in 1991 at the age of 28. And when that happened, Pat, a deputy head, by this time shared the knowledge and experience that she had developed over those 28 years of Kathy's life, often fighting the system. Pat wrote two books to help parents as well as professionals to support and cope with the challenges of looking after children with disabilities. In her first book, Home at Last, Pat told the story of her shared endeavours with parents of another girl who had profound disabilities. And together, those parents achieved for their daughters the dream of a home of their own, supported by 24-hour care and funded by the state. Pat's second book, Listen to Me, is a practical manual of how to cope with complex problems of people with profound disabilities. It's based on Pat's handwritten notes about how to care for Cathy when Cathy was hospitalised or in respite care. It described Cathy at her best for the hospital staff who so often saw her when she was not at her best, but in pain. We learn about Cathy's personality, her likes and dislikes, how to communicate with her, how to deal with her physical needs. And those handwritten notes, which were Cathy's care manual, appear as part of the book. If you Google it, you can see it on the internet. The book that Pat wrote to help parents and carers and professionals interpret the needs of children like Cathy. In the foreword, Pat wrote, people like Cathy deserve the very best our society can give. Unfortunately, their rights are often in doubt. Meeting their needs is a constant struggle communicating Cathy's needs through this book made it more likely that they would be met. In the message for her own memorial meeting, which Pat wrote to friends and family, she spoke of her sadness that her attempts with others to get rid of injustice and inequality and exploitation had failed she described her, leg her legacy as modest, improving the quality of life for people with learning disabilities so that they receive the respect that they deserve and are enabled to lead a meaningful life. Not modest at all, because what we see as modest in our own achievements for others are inspirational, magnificent. 
That's the lesson of Pat's life and of the fictional George Bailey. And that brings me to other real lives, those of Rushenta and Philip Barber. I came to know and love them both through my home congregation, Golders Green Unitarians. They were born in the 1920s, married and lived, married in 1947, and lived the rest of their lives in Golders Green until Philip died in 2010 and Rashenda in 2016. They saw themselves as citizens of the world. And when they decided to take in lodgers, Philip went to register with an agency. He noticed that some of the index cards giving details of the houses with rooms available had a black dot on the top right-hand corner. What do the dots mean, he asked. They indicate that the landlords don't want black lodgers, came the answer. In that case, replied Philip, we only want black lodgers. <laughs> and so the daughter born to two of those African lodgers in the barber's home that they termed world government house. <laughs> the daughter named after Rashenda came to Philip's and then to Rashenda's memorial meetings. Young Rashenda spoke movingly about the warmth that she and her parents found at 47 Rotherick Road, Golders Green, and of the family Rashenda and Philip were to them in a generally hostile 1950s London environment for black immigrants. From that Golders Green Lodgings Bureau and those index cards tainted with black dots were sown nurturing seeds for that Ghanaian family. Seeds of kindness, empathy, compassion, seeds of love. Those seeds grew into roots that partly make Rashenda Jr. into the woman who wept for her namesake because of the kindness, the empathy, the compassion, the love that she had found in a sometimes hostile world. How then shall we live? If we are to grow into wholeness, then surely it must be with those very qualities of which we have just spoken. Kindness, empathy, compassion, love, but also with appreciation. Appreciation of the natural world, of great art and music, the blessings bestowed upon us living in the 21st century in the West, and most of all, for each other and the friendships forged, and the bonds of love made. At 54, I'm ever more conscious of that legacy of love and appreciation. When I was 10, I was diagnosed with cancer, and Maggie, who looked after me and had done since I was six weeks old when my mother went back to work, came daily for several months to Bart's hospital 
where she stayed with me from 10 o'clock in the morning until 7 in the evening. She was then 81. Now, my parents both liked to drink. Whether it was in the gun or the Brunswick or the Morning Star or Top of the Morning or the Kenton or the Randley, they supported them all. <laughs> As I say, it was probably a second home. Maggie's was mine. I remember my mother complaining about the amount of time I spent on my homework. <laughs> so I would retreat to Maggie's flat and together we developed our own unique revision methods. I would explain a topic because that's the way it stayed in my head and Maggie listened. The number of times she had to endure lessons in organic chemistry, <laughs> the loss of the American colonies and Shakespeare's Othello. That I went on to study A-levels and then to university is partly her legacy. It's Pat's too, as well as the legacy of my chemistry teacher, Leslie Mansbridge, who, when I said, I'm going to leave and be a hairdresser at the age of 16, said, you don't want to do that. You've got to stay on and do A-levels. So our lives are enriched by those people, those special people that Socrates described as good angels, the kind of great souls revered in the 84th Psalm, whose passing through the valley of weeping makes it a place of springs. My Aunt Lil brought that spring to lives of fellow travellers, those whose lives she touched. Her impulse to help someone she knew was in who the impulse her bits her impulse to help someone she knew who was in need was instinctive. She thrived on shopping for her neighbours, but her even greater pleasure was in fussing over my Billy, her brother, as she called him. They argued like cat and dog and would complain to me separately about each other. <laughs> but when Billy was diagnosed with bowel cancer and was receiving treatment for it, Lil's practical and sustained compassion helped him to get back on his feet. It helped me too. Both of us, Dad and I, in our own ways, appreciated deeply what Maggie and Lil did for us, so often putting us before their own needs. The thing is, though, we never actually told them in words while they lived. I don't remember ever thanking Lil at the time when Maggie died on that bleak Monday morning in January 1992, and Lil came with me to the hospital to say goodbye to Maggie while her body was still warm. I only said thank you to Maggie and thank you, Lil, 
for all the times you were there for me after they'd joined George Eliot's The Choir Invisible. Maybe there are fewer legacies more precious for us to leave behind than to be remembered for saying thank you. On another Monday morning, 24 years after Aunt Lil came with me to say goodbye to Maggie, I sat beside Lil's body in the same hospital. I thought of them both and what their bequest to me was. Courage and service were the qualities that came to mind. As Lil lay only days from her own death, she was getting her neighbour to order flowers for the funeral of Alf, another neighbour, and writing the tribute for the card to go with them. On that Monday, I spoke to her the same words of blessing I'd spoken to my father, her Billy, as he had taken his final breaths. They were words written by the Reverend Edgar Daplin to his feminist daughter and fellow Unitarian minister, Joyce, when she died tragically at the age of 31. Their words are carved on a memorial to her in the Unitarian church at Golders Green. Softly, softly sail to rest, softly into gentle realm, born on a sea of love, love in the wind, love at the helm, love in the heaven above. In the end, there were no traumatic bedside goodbyes for Lil. She went as she wanted, quietly, on her own and with dignity, early in the morning and two years exactly to the date, the 26th of September, when her Billy had died. It was also less than 48 hours after watching Ed Balls on her favourite Strictly, surrounded wow. by her family. <laughs> I do wonder if the timing of her death was of her own choosing. My, Pat, my, my teacher Pat's was. She courageously chose to have an assisted death and travelled to Switzerland when, in her own words, she had arrived at the limits of her endurance of pain, discomfort and exhaustion. Pat, as we've heard, faced many difficulties, challenges and tragedies in her life and she wasn't accustomed to giving up, especially when there were so many books still to read and languages to learn, and music to discover, and plants to nurture. But fear of a long drawn out decline with more discomfort and pain and dependency, she decided were not for her. In her letter to her family and friends, she encouraged us to look thy last on all things lovely every hour and make the most of every good moment. In her bidding, she asked us to drink 
to love and friendship and the desire and the will to continue the struggle against injustice and to make life better for more than the fortunate few. And so ends part one of my theme talk and we shall now sing Spirit of Life. <laughs> 148 in the purple book. <coughs> Sing it twice. of laughter and tears, of sorrow and rejoicing, is everywhere the same, as are the gestures of greeting and farewell, the reassuring hand clasp, the silent yes to another, the sigh of deep satisfaction or regret. I had only admiration for Pat's courageous decision, yet the regret of a missed opportunity for one last meeting to offer that reassuring hand clasp was bewildering and painful and actually did send me into a sort of depression for quite a few months. Too many 
loose ends. But if we think about life, we soon realise, don't we, that it's full of loose ends. Though life in general, as well as our lives in particular, we quickly come to see that we're engaged in a risky business. To fully live is to be faced invariably with regrets and to experience pain. The poet Kathleen Rain wrote, of all the arts, the living of a life is perhaps the greatest. I take comfort in the words of truth that Kathleen writes, the truth that life is difficult and often complicated and untidy, but rewarding and joyful. There is pain, and that, as they say, is the price that we pay for love. In the creating and the recreating of our legacies, each day we are dancing with both sensations, pain and love, love and pain. In the wrestling with our mortality and coming to terms with the reality that we will all die, there is an irony. If human beings yearn to be loved, we also want to be missed when we're gone. Wouldn't be natural, would it, if we didn't want our loved ones to be upset when we're no longer around? Want weeping, but not too much. These lines from the writer and performer Joyce Grenville capture that juxtaposition in simple words, but very effectively. If I should die before the rest of you, break not a flower, nor inscribe a stone, nor, when I'm gone, speak in Sunday voice, be the usual selves that I have known, weep if you must. Parting is hell, but life goes on, so sing as well. Mm. Old is the earth, and we are here for a very short time. How then, through our searching and exploration, can we make sense of this life cycle and the meaning of our lives, that we are part of that independent web, that interdependent web of which we are all part. I've got three thoughts. The first is that all stories have a beginning, a middle and an end. And our lives are essentially the stories of the earth and its creatures. And some books and poems are long and others are short and they each tell life's story and are in themselves complete. It's what's in between the covers that creates the abundance for us. It's the narrative we create that forms the middle of the story to which, like an artist, we need to pay attention. But like a Victorian three-volume novel, our lives won't be riveting all the time. 
in his long and I think quite complex and difficult essay experience, Ralph Waldo Emerson finds himself trapped in the mundane treadmill of everyday life. He laments the amount of time that we have to spend on routine preparation. He writes that the pith of a person's genius concentrates itself into a very few hours. We have all no doubt been there. But if Emerson is lamenting and questioning what we have to show for our lives, he also provides us with some comfort, a kind of global answer when he writes that the years teach us much which the days never know. Here's the challenge though. We need the days to make the years. The meaning of our lives comes in the little things, often in the small incidental things and details of life that we hardly notice. My second and related thought lets is, is, is let me remind us, us sorry, sorry, my second and related thought, let us remind ourselves how precious time is, especially when it's so short, so that we may make use of it and make use of it well. As Shakespeare said in Sonnet 73, this thou perceivest which makes thy love more strong to love that well which thou must leave ere long. In his autobiographical book, The Silence of Dark Water, Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg recounts sitting with a terminally ill friend. We sat in at the kitchen table and my friend spoke to me about her illness. Life, she acknowledged bravely, can't be measured in quantity alone. In the face of imminent death, one has to see each day as an entire universe and every hour as an opportunity. A beautiful morning, a walk in the park, a few minutes peace. These experiences have intrinsic value and cannot be regarded as of greater or lesser value because of how much time is on either side of them. <laughs> Rabbi Wittenberg urges us to act. If there is something good and kind, exhilarating and worthwhile, which we can do, he says, then we should go right ahead and do it now. Here I'm reminded of Jean Mason and her question, tell me what it is you plan to do with your one wild and precious life. My third thought on how we find meaning draws again on Jonathan Wittenberg. He's talking this time about how we live on through the memories of those that we leave behind when he tells us that we should write ourselves into the book of other people's lives. We should write ourselves into the book of other people's lives. It's through those relationships and bonds that the patterns of our legacies, such as they are, take shape. And through our memories of those we have loved and lost, 
are created new ones, which with the passing of time create new patterns from the old. My Aunt Lil's sister Rose was very good at keeping in touch with family and friends through the telephone in the days before mobiles. The sisters spoke twice daily. When Rose died, I seemed to inherit her role of keeping everyone in touch by phone. When she was alive, I rarely spoke on the phone to her, Rose's husband, my Uncle Jim, or even my Aunt Lil, because I kept up to date through Rose. <laughs> when Rose died, new, new patterns emerged. Now I speak to Uncle Jim often and have come to appreciate him in new ways that I hadn't seen before, especially his wicked sense of humour at the age of 94. So continues the legacy of Aunt Rose and her telephone. The changing patterns of life's kaleidoscope and the legacy of memories greet me each day when I, the wedding ring that I now wear, once Maggie's, belonged to me, belongs to me now. I make the porridge in Maggie's iron saucepan and I eat it at her kitchen table. Yes, the one at which I sat in my yellow high chair as a baby. The difference now, our cat Marmalade sits on the table having breakfast with us, adding a new daily memory to old ones. That Maggie would not have tolerated. <laughs> Such is the continuing story of her kitchen table. With the calling of this love and the voice of this calling, we shall not cease from exploration and the end of all our exploring, will, we will arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. So wrote T.S. Eliot. So there is loss, great loss, but life carries on. The sun continues to shine and the spring daffodils shoot up in the garden as if nothing has happened. In the face of death, life may never be quite the same again. And yet the daffodils still grow. Call this world a veil of soul making, the poet John Keats observed. We cannot deny that there are indeed much suffering and uncertainty endured in the business of birth and death and the drama of what there is in between. We know from Voltaire, the 18th century writer and Enlightenment thinker, what the scale of that drama is when he reveals in his satirical masterpiece, Condide, the sufferings of Condide in what Dr. Pangloss has termed the best of all possible worlds. Condide and his love, Cunegonde, go through endless misadventures and torments and trials, banishment dislocation, 
threats of death, weather, all manner of things that could have broke them. But it didn't. What then can we do in the time that we have to make life worthwhile? After all, his sufferings, Condide observes that all we can do is to make the best of things and, as he puts it, to cultivate our garden. Curious as we are of our own lives and conscious as we are of our own mortality and the need to bear with each other's faults and frailties, I am reminded of the evening prayer of the Reverend Eli Jenkins in Under Milk Wood. Every morning when I wake, dear Lord, a little prayer I make. Oh, please do keep thy lovely eye on all poor creatures born to die. And every evening at sundown, I ask a blessing on the town. For whether we last the night or no, I'm sure is always touch and go. We are not wholly bad or good who live our lives under milk wood. And thou, I know, wilt be the first to see our best side, not our worst. So then, how shall we live? In considering what it means to lead a good life and leave the earth a meaningful legacy, may we find connection with the words of Ralph Waldo Emerson, or at least words attributed to him. To laugh often and to love much, to appreciate beauty, to win the affection of children and to know that one life has breathed easier because we have lived. If you want to see his monument, look around you. So reads the epitaph on the tomb of Sir Christopher Wren in St Paul's Cathedral. Well, for most of us, there aren't going to be any grand monuments, are there? But increasingly, of course, there will be our social media footprints. <laughs> but our real legacy, our true and real legacy, will be made from the way that we've lived, the kindness we've shown in the words that we speak, and the acts that we perform. It's there in Mr Barry's workshop, in Pat's books, the making of a meaningful life for Cathy, and in the lives that Pat changed through her teaching. It lives through the ripples of justice created by Rushenda and Philip, in being good neighbours and not passing by on the other side. There's Maggie's and Lil's service to me and my father performed out of love. As Philip Larkin observed, what will survive of us is love. 
Our legacy, Pat told us, is the memories of those with whom we have shared love and friendship and fellowship and conversations and meals and laughter and adventures. It's with us in the challenges that we face, sometimes facing them alone, sometimes together, even as we look disappointment in the eye and the business of life seems overwhelming as we struggle to make this world just that bit more kinder, more empathetic, more compassionate. Let us recall then the story of the anonymous boy seeing the starfish all washed up on the shore and doing what he could to save some by doing something when he might so easily have done nothing. As George Eliot writes of her heroine, Dorothea, at the end of Middlemarch, we mortals, men and women, devour many a disappointment between breakfast and dinner time, keep back the tears and look a little pale at the lips, and in answer to inquiries say, oh, nothing. Pride helps, and pride is not a bad thing when it only urges us to hide our hurts, not to hurt others. But the effect of her being on those around her was incalculably diffuse, for the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts. And that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who live faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. And so let us embrace the message of Condide and the music of Leonard Bernstein in the centenary of his birth. Let us, like Condide, go build our house, chop our wood and make our garden grow. And so let us hear the closing song from Condide. We will seek a few modest little acres and build a small farm and casting aside all vain speculations as to the meaning of this meaningless world we will fulfill our function working God's earth from dawn to dusk.
Thank you. <laughs> 